You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, Episode 7. Today, we're sitting down with wildlife conservation photographer, naturalist, instructor, and all-around wonderful person, Jamie Heimbuch, to talk about how to get a conservation photography project off the ground, from inspiration to ideation and story formation to publication and a whole lot more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hey, everybody, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. I'm really excited to bring you today's guest, Jamie Heimbuch, because we really connected well and had a blast with our conversation. So before we jump in, let me give you a little background on Jamie. Jamie is a wildlife conservation photographer who was listed in the top 10 female nature photographers to watch in Wild Planet Photo magazine. Her photography has been published in National Geographic Books, Sierra Magazine, Bay Nature Magazine, Wild Planet Photo Magazine, National Wildlife Magazine, and in many other outlets. She is also an accomplished writer with publications about the environment, wildlife, and companion animals in the Huffington Post Beautiful Beasties, Sierra Club's Green Life blog, and a cover in BBC Wildlife Magazine. Jamie was also the recipient of a National Geographic Expeditions Council grant to create the Urban Coyotes Initiative, which was a six-year project that combined photography, filmmaking, and science to raise awareness on how to safely coexist with this incredible animal in the urban environment. Jamie's current passion is helping other nature photographers craft visual stories so that they can inspire smarter decision-making both locally and globally. To this end, she created the Conservation Photography 101 course, which is a self-paced online course that guides you through the step-by-step process of identifying a conservation story, crafting a photo essay, and pitching it to editors for publication. She is also the creator of Wild Idea Lab, which is a membership community for conservation photographers and filmmakers that provides a supportive peer community with mentors, exclusive access to educational content and resources, and also ongoing coaching and support. Lastly, Jamie is the host of Impact, the conservation photography podcast, which you should definitely check out if you're interested in learning more about conservation photography. And so without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Jamie Heimbuch. Jamie, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, yeah. I'm so excited to be connecting with you. So I already gave uh, your bio in the introduction, but for people who don't really know your origin story and all of that, I was wondering if you could tell us, you know, who is Jamie? Where are you from? How did you get started in conservation photography? Oh, okay. Uh, I'm happy to do that. Um, I am a photographer who primarily focuses on wildlife conservation, uh, and I've definitely found my path into teaching and coaching, which I'm loving. So right now, that's a huge focus, even more so than getting out and shooting. Um, But usually when I'm out shooting, it is 
really focused in on telling the stories of species. And Mm -hmm. uh, especially when it comes to conservation efforts, I was born and raised in California and uh, about four years ago moved to the Oregon coast, which really feels like home to me. Like it just, there's something about it where I just feel nestled in. It is my kind of ecosystem, the rocky coastline, the conifer and fern covered forest. I just, I love it here. Yeah. Um, and right now I am renting a small studio apartment from a friend of mine up in Astoria. And I really am just going to apologize to all the listeners. If you hear noise <laughs> and chaos, it's because I have roommates and dogs and everyone's doing their own thing. Yeah. Um, and they tolerate me recording, <laughs> uh, but not always quietly. But, um, so That's I, to- totally fine. <laughs> um, but it's pretty great because my friend is a conservation photographer and filmmaker. And so oh, cool. we're living inside of this very creative bubble right now. Um, yeah. And just enjoying really digging into to all of the stories that the Oregon Coast has to offer us. That's exciting. So how did you get started in conservation photography? Like you were saying you were started off in wildlife. And so what got your interest in conservation specifically? Well, I when I started really focusing in on wildlife as sort of like this calling, the, the one thing in photography that I was really drawn to. Actually, let me back up slightly. So when I started really getting passionate about photography in a, in a serious way where I knew I wanted to do something with it. I was focused in on wildlife in particular, um, but I didn't know that at first. I was kind of experimenting with food photography and street photography, which was so not my jam. Um, I thought that that <laughs> yeah. was like this artistic thing to do and really don't like it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, then, then it went to photographing my dog and then to other dogs. And I was volunteering as a pet photographer for a rescue center. And then, oh, nice. And then I realized how much I really loved photographing animals. And then that veered into to wildlife. And then once, once that kind of can of worms opened, it was just, I, 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 there was no looking back. It was going to be wildlife period. And when I started really digging into that, I realized that there's this entire realm for conservation. So it goes way beyond, you know, beautiful portraits or, you know, kind of telling these these lovely stories, but stories that might not necessarily have like a purpose, a bigger picture purpose to them. Right. And um, I'm of a personality type where I always feel like whatever I create needs to have a reason. It needs to accomplish something. It's just one of my personality quirks. I know there's a lot of other people out there where it's like doing things just for fun for us doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's like everything <laughs> has, to, has to have a reason. Um, right. And so when I discovered the realm of conservation photography, I was like, oh my gosh, that's how I have a reason for all of these portraits I was creating. Like I was, it was back in the day when I was still using Flickr forever ago. And so I'd put yeah. all these pictures on Flickr of wildlife and it was fine, but it was not fulfilling. And then when yeah. I discovered conservation photography, it was like, oh, now I can post images and they have these bigger arching stories that that move people, that cause them to think that maybe change behaviors for the better and right. if anything, give a voice to the species that I was photographing. So that's really kind of that, that yeah. path. Yeah. Very, very cool. Um, so are you a self-taught photographer or did, have you taken, do you have a degree in photography or how'd that start? <laughs> well, um, when I was in high school, I started taking a class at the local college for photography and got pretty hooked. That was back in like film and darkroom days, pre-digital yeah. stuff. 
and uh, really got hooked on that. Like just the, you know, picking up the weight. I had a Pentax K1000 and the just the weight of it and the sound of the click. And you yeah. know, there was so much <laughs> that was fun and getting into the dark room and seeing images emerge. And I really loved that. So uh, when I graduated high school, I decided I was going to go to college as a photography major. Well, this was right at the cusp of when digital photography was starting to take off. And I went to a college that had like basically the, the first day, I did not research my college very well. I kind of just picked one and and went. Um, and yeah. so the college that I went to was uh, transitioning their dark rooms into digital dark rooms. And it was going to be happening over the next like year or two. And I was Ooh. like, oh, that's not what I want. Like I want the hands-on dark room. Yeah. And so I, instead of switching colleges, I just switched majors and I became an English major and kind of, <laughs> you know, um, then, you know, life happens and things shifted long story short. So then after leaving college and switching majors and I kind of like left the camera behind for a while and it wasn't for quite a while later, quite a few years later that I picked it back up again. And by then I was already, you know, in the professional sphere. This was about 2008, I think. Um, okay. So I was already like, I had graduated college in 2004, was in the, you know, the working and kind of like it never occurred to me to go back to school and get a degree in anything. And so it was all listening to friends, experimenting, playing around with stuff, watching tutorial videos on Adobe Creative Cloud and just kind of figuring right. it out as I went along. Um, yeah, so a lot yeah. of it, I, you know, some people will call that self-taught, but I feel like I was kind of community taught. <laughs> a whole yeah. bunch of other experienced people lent little bits and pieces that I collected and became a yeah. photographer out of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. Well, it sounds like it's been a lifelong passion of yours. It really has. And I didn't know that when I was kind of obsessed with the camera when I was a kid, I would never have called myself a photographer or recognized that I had kind of ambitions there. I just enjoyed it. And then yeah. I think it wasn't until the last decade or so where I was like, ah, oh, this is calling. This is something yeah. I, I love that I crave. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. If someone is just starting out and getting interested in using their photography skills to create a conservation story, what are some tips on how to get started researching or identifying potential projects or topics? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, so there's a few ways to kind of dig into this. Um, one of the really common ways is to find a local organization, like a nonprofit or um, some sort of group that really speaks to you, that you enjoy what it is they're doing, you believe in what they're doing. And uh, a lot of folks start out volunteering for organizations like that for maybe photographing their events or photographing the research they do. Mm -hmm. um, another opportunity is to do kind of a similar thing, but with researchers at a local university. So okay. there's so much amazing research happening at universities. And a lot of times you can connect with people who are doing really amazing work on um, species or on habitats or ecosystems. And if there, there's something that can work out there where you can photograph their work, it's a great way for you to kind of get out there, learn a little bit. Um, it's it's more difficult to get involved that way because there are a lot of nuances about you know communicating with a researcher and kind of ethics with being out in the field with them. You don't ever want to get in their way when you're documenting right. stuff. And so yeah. I feel like starting out volunteering and then moving into maybe working with researchers at universities, that can be a, a great path. And then a third thing that you can do is just to curate your own 
basically a personal project. So you can look around and think, okay, is there a, a sort of environmental issue or a conservation issue that I'm drawn to and uh, craft a project or a story that revolves around documenting that. So I use the example because I know so many people who lean this way, use the example of pollinators. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people get really interested in bees and butterflies and bugs in their yard. And so you might be able to start a project that revolves around telling the story of pollinators and uh, issues that they're facing. And does that maybe look like um, photographing the species themselves and getting your neighbors interested in them, you know, your community members interested in them through gallery exhibits? Or does that look like maybe going the story route and talking about one of the main things, main threats that pollinators face and photographing a story around that and trying to get that published in a local magazine. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of different routes that you could go, but you can basically curate a personal project around an issue that you feel really drawn to. And yeah. when we talk about conservation photography, we're really talking about what you do with the images that you create. So that's kind of like the big thing that separates, I don't, you know, it's kind of bad to say this, but like regular old wildlife photography and <laughs> conservation <laughs> photography it's really the what you the work that you put your images to go do in the world after you've taken them. And so the only difference between maybe taking really lovely images of pollinators in your yard and um, you know showing them off just as a wildlife photographer and then showing them off as a conservation photographer is that you're you're sending a message or you're putting them to work or you're informing people about conservation issues with those images. Right, right. There's information attached to that image. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's educational exactly. in nature. Yeah. yeah. So um, from the work that you've been doing with mentoring your students, what are some of the challenges that new conservation photographers tend to face when they're just starting out? Well, uh, I will say that one of the unique challenges that many of my students have faced as they start out over the last year is that they can't get out and shoot. Yeah. Um, or they like if we started working together back in maybe January, February of last year, they started in on maybe working with a researcher and then that researcher had to put everything on pause or they're not allowing people onto the field with them or, you know. Right. So basically some some big barriers to being able to actually get out and shoot has has been a big impediment to a lot of people. A lot of the students that I work with, I admire them so much because they still want to learn as much as they possibly can, even if they can't pick up a camera. And yeah. since there's so much work you do to put together a story before you ever pick up the camera, they're still chugging forward. Um, and so I, That's I, good. I love that. But then yeah. um, other common challenges is learning how to frame a story. And it's a big challenge because we usually think in terms of like a topic or an idea and it's this big, broad thing. And so the, a big challenge that they faced is really zeroing in on how that's a story to tell with characters and like a narrative arc and, and a purpose to it so that they can get their conservation message out through that story. Because documenting mm -hmm. a topic is, is wonderful, but um, really digging into a story makes it powerful and makes it so that yeah. people can connect. Yeah, it's so interesting you bring that up. That was a question I was going to have about a podcast on your show, on your podcast, The Impact Podcast. You had mentioned in a conversation, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the episode off the top of my head, the difference between topic and story and how it's such an important distinction to make when you're trying to communicate a message. Yeah, 
So what are what are some of the key elements that would make up a good conservation story, would you say? Well, some of the things to really pay attention to are, do you have a so what factor? So by that, I mean, um, is there a reason why people are going to care about what it is that you're documenting or discussing inside of your story? So um, for example, uh, let's go back to that pollinator example. So you might have this story about pollinators in decline. If you don't have a so what factor for why people need to care, then it's really hard to keep them interested in that story. And it kind of is this your story is kind of like this bowl of mush, you know, you you really need a so what factor. So people can be like, Oh, that's why I need to pay attention. That's why I want to read to the end of this because it affects me somehow and relates to me in my life somehow. And, um, so finding that big, so what factor, the other thing is, do you have characters? Um, that's a really big one. A lot of people, you know, kind of get started on a story and they think, Oh yeah, well, it's going to be about pollinators. So I'm just going to photograph, you know, the bugs in my yard. Yes, but do you have like really solid characters that drive the narrative of the story forward? So is there a single species that you can zero in on and tell the story of just that species? And so just that species is your character. Or Mm -hmm. um, do you have a person who can sort of be the main driving character for the story of pollinators? Maybe it's someone who works with uh, butterflies, or they work with people to add native species into their yards so that pollinators have food. Or you know, is there is there a compelling person or species or a character that you can really follow? Um, and yeah. and they they kind of like take that you know sort of bowl of mush when you have a story without a so what factor or characters, and that character can can actually help to advance that so what factor. So that's a really important thing. Um, and the other really important thing is to have a variety of images that guide viewers and explain the story in a bigger way. One of the big issues, and this happens with even like, you know, high profile, very experienced photographers, and they just shoot a whole bunch of portraits of stuff. They don't know how to tell a story through their images. And yeah. story includes a whole range of um, scene setting images and detail images and context images and action and all of these other things that all together combine to create a photo story. So it's right. not just a collection of portraits or a collection of, of shots that are pretty. It's really different types of shots that serve functions. And once you can put all those together, now you got a story. Right. So do you do you work off of like a shot list and that sort of thing? Like, do you kind of, um, you know, come up with your characters, come up with the the storyline of, you know, the story that you're trying to tell about this character or set of characters. And then do you basically sketch out like a storyboard of like, well, I need a, you know, a shot like this and a shot like that. And this is how the story is going to lead the reader to the end. Mm-hmm. Is that basically how, how you would set it up? Then? Absolutely. And, like you okay. nailed it. And shot lists are so critical to, um, I think they're underestimated and yet, completely essential things to build, uh, especially shot lists before you head out into the field. So you know what you're going to be getting just that day in the, in the situation that you're going to be in. But yes. So basically I'll, when I come, like when I come out a story and I think about how I want to tell it, then I'll start to imagine what types of images I could possibly get for this story and what purpose they might serve. Um, and then think about, well, what do I have access to photograph and what do I need to get access to photograph and how do I want to approach it and how many, how am I going to build variety into my images and how will I compose things really uniquely 
And I, and I really just visualize what those individual shots might be. Um, what perspective am I going to capture them from? Uh, mm-hmm. what kind, do I want to use long exposure or, you know, do I want to do action that has some blur to it? So you really see movement or, um, how am I going to light that scene and really start shaping out just like you said, a storyboard for that story and then, and build a shot list from that. Right. So how much time do you spend sort of scouting and planning before coming up with your outline and your storyboard and all of that so that you're familiar with the location, um, I guess it depends on how big of a broad area that you're going to be, you know, focusing what species you're focusing on. And, you know, are you going across state lines and it's like a really broad area or is it your backyard pollinator? But um, is there a lot of time spent just out there scoping out things like this would make a good background? So I'm going to set up a blind here or something for this type of wildlife shot or how does that work? Because I have never done anything like that. So I really am asking some ignorant questions. No, so. <laughs> my goodness, no, these are wonderful questions. And I think I'm a firm believer that there's no such thing as a stupid question, because the fact that anyone asks questions means, you know, we're going to grow and learn. Um, yeah. So, so much of it depends on what the story is about, how big it is, and also um, how I'm going about it. So there's a difference between kind of like being hired for an assignment versus something where mm. I can go a little more slowly about how I, you know, might approach the story. But, um, I, I think most of the time the, if I were going to have the ideal version of, of crafting a story, the scouting and the research part is going hand in hand with the shot list building and kind of like the visualizing what's possible. So I'll, you know, maybe it's a a story that involves, you know, a species that a researcher is working on and I know that I'm going to be able to get out into the field with them. So I'm thinking about like, okay, so where are we going? What time of day? What might the weather be like? What are the shooting conditions? Um, what does the act, what does the activity involve? Um, what actual motions are they going through? And so that might mean there's an interview with the researcher to say, what is it that you do? Like, what does this look like? Take me through what the process looks like and the pacing and all of that. Um, and then figure out how I'm going to photograph that part. And then it might be like, okay, well, if the species lives in this type of environment and I want to, you know, kind of really illustrate that, then that means there's a scouting trip to go out and see, okay, well, what does this environment look like? What does it feel like? What is its like personality at different times of day? What aspect of this environment is really important to the species? So I know that I'm going to have to approach a shot really zeroing in on that aspect of the location. Um, So the research and the digging into uh, all of the like visuals goes hand in hand with building that shot list. But sometimes you don't have the luxury of that. Sometimes it's like, well, um, this this event or this research, it's happening uh, from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on a bright, sunny day. And they're going to go at the pace that they want to go. So you just better figure it out. (laughs) And you might have a shot list and you might get one of those. And then you're just like, well, I'm going to wing it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. How much uh, do you have to bring lighting equipment out with you? Do do you do that often or? It depends on the situation. So I've like leaned away pretty heavily from doing um, assignment photography work. And so a lot of what I do when I head out is for my own projects, my own personal projects. So it depends really on what it is I'm trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. I've found that um, 
when I'm heading out into the field and I know that I'm going to want to use lighting. So I know it's, I'm not going to lean on natural light. I know that I'm going to want to light a scene. And that happens a lot when I'm doing like macro photography, or if I want to do some really fun landscape stuff where I'm, you know, maybe popping a flash on a certain plant or rock. And then anyway, um, so what I, what my typical kit looks like for a situation like that is I have one or maybe two flashes and wireless trigger and receiver. And mm-hmm. I have this wonderful 20-inch soft box that compresses down into this little 8-inch disc. And I'll take that out into the field with me along with the camera gear. But I usually, I'm not a very large person. And so I can't <laughs> carry a whole lot with me. Right. Uh, so I have one backpack and I need to just like, I, I pretty much max out at like 40 pounds of gear. 40 to 50 wow, pounds. Wow, like, a I lot. I can't carry more than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... When do you know when a story's finished? Oh, what a beautiful question to ask. <laughs> um, so there's, I guess, two different ways to say finished, right? There's you're done shooting and it's ready mm-hmm. to be published. And then there's finished when whatever it is that you are shooting the story for, the purpose behind it, when that's resolved. So the second one is much harder to answer. The first one, I feel like that also totally depends. But I think that once you have all of those variety types of shots, the the different types of shots that you need to really pull together a story that visually explains to people all these different complexities of what you're trying to say – once you've pulled those together and you can look through your set of images and say, yeah, I – I think someone is going to understand and feel what the story is about just through these images. Then you know you're ready. Um, And that can be like ready to publish it on your website or ready to pitch it to a magazine or, you know, whatever that purpose might be. But then I think depending on what you're – as a conservation photographer, like I'm coming at all of these as a conservation photographer. Um, Yeah. So if you are really digging into a story, especially ones that are personal projects, stories that you're pursuing out of just like a a desire to um, bring the spotlight onto a cause or an issue or a, a problem that you really want people to know about, then it's a matter of like, okay, well, I completed this story. I'm going to get that out there. I'm going to see what kind of impact that has. And it might mean that I need to tell the story again from a different angle to reach a different mm. audience. Right. Or I might need to build it out into a different um, approach or or put it the same story out, but in on different media. So it might be print and a social media packet and a gallery exhibit or something so that you are truly starting to affect change um, and, right. and cause that change to happen. And, and that now we're getting into the nitty gritty of conservation photography where it's like, well, how do we measure that? How do we, you know, how do we talk right. to our audience? How do we, how do we know when we're making progress? Sometimes it means you're finished because the, the endangered species you were telling a story about, now it's on the endangered species list and it's getting protections. And so you're like, check, okay, yeah. I've made a difference <laughs> for this animal. You know, the story's not done even then, but you've right. made a tangible impact. And so it's almost like, okay, there's, there's this clear thing. But I think most of the time it's very nebulous. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like it's ongoing all the time in, in what we dig into. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, because there's always probably more to uncover, you know, another rabbit hole maybe to go down that's like, oh, here's a whole new relationship that we hadn't discussed yet or discovered yet. And now we're going to describe that and how that's impacting it. And I can just see that that could just keep snowballing to the point where it's like, okay, how do we know when 
this is a complete story and then this is part two, you Mm -hmm. know, or, or whatever. So yeah, that's great. So one question I had was, you know, we've been talking about starting with the story in mind or the characters in mind and building a story around that. Do you ever start with a publisher in mind or potential readership in mind that you want to, you know, communicate some sort of conservation issue to, or you just want to raise, you know, general conservation awareness around? And from that, then try to pick the story that would be a good fit. Mm-hmm. Do, you ever, do you ever work backwards that way? I, I have to tell you, I absolutely love your questions. And oh, good. I feel like I'm going to like bring you into the world of conservation photography because you're already thinking about really important approaches and, and things to consider. Um, so yes, I think that it is really important. Um, so I teach a course called Conservation Photography 101, and I very purposefully structure it in a way that I teach students first how to create the story and the foundations of it, how to go out and shoot that story, and then how to research publications and find the perfect publication to pitch that story to and how to pitch, like how to write the email. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do it that way because when you don't have a whole heck of a lot of experience under your belt for, for telling stories, I really want you to learn the craft of creating a story first. Mm-hmm. But once you start to have that experience, then absolutely thinking about the publication first and thinking like, okay, well, there's this there's this conservation issue I want to bring attention to, and I really need to get it to this one you know, audience. I need to get it outside the choir. I need to get it to a broader audience, to a mainstream audience, or to this, maybe this like certain niche of people, because they're the ones who I really need to know because their behavior, their thoughts, or their input, or whatever matters the most to this Right, issue. or their, their vote, or whatever. Or their vote, exactly. Yeah. And so when that's the case, thinking about the publication is critical because you're thinking, okay, well, What's their style? What's their approach? What's their voice? How do they tackle the way that they tell photo stories or the way that they want to tackle narrative? Um, What's their style? And then you can take that conservation issue and you can kind of frame your story in a way that really appeals to that publication and that audience. And you're still being incredibly truthful to your story. You're not twisting your story in any way. You're just framing it in a way that makes the most sense for that publication. Um, And so you can take the same story and you can basically shoot it and frame, like you can frame it, shoot it and pitch it to like maybe three or four radically different publications and have it get accepted by all of them because you are approaching it in a very different way. And those are not competing publications. They're in these very different realms. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So we're digging into such fun stuff. You're going to have to (laughs) cut me off sometimes because I could ramble. Oh, I love the ramble. No, no, please ramble. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Um, so I, I, I understand that you're currently working on a project called Watershed Sentinels and I was, yeah. So I was wondering, can you tell us about this project and what inspired it and how has it been going so far? Oh, absolutely. I appreciate you so much asking about this because it's this, um, project that I got really excited about and started to plow into. And then so many things kind of felt like they got in the way. And right now I'm trying to like I'm in the spot of restoking that creative fire. So I'm really excited to talk about it. Oh, Um, good. So that project actually was sparked by an assignment that I did for Audubon Magazine on the marbled murelet. And I had been really fascinated by this species before that. And the marbled murelet is a a robin-sized seabird. But it spends all this time out at sea during the year 
And then when it comes to nesting season, it actually flies miles and miles inland and nests in old growth forest or like large second growth trees. So it's this bird that really bridges the forest and the sea and it needs both to survive. And so if something is causing imbalance in the ocean or if something is causing imbalance in forests, that bird feels it. It's this Mm -hmm. really incredible sentinel species. And um, so that assignment, I got to work with uh, a research team that's doing a big 10-year study on the marbled murrelet here on the Oregon coast. Oh, wow. And they just, well, first of all, that team is extraordinary. Like I, all of the people involved in that project are the coolest people. Like you just want to hang out with them all day long. Yeah. Um, they were really welcoming. And I uh, made a really great connection with the lead researcher and, and he kind of, you know, gave me the thumbs up on, on working with them some more later on COVID hit. So I haven't even pursued it yet, but, but we've kind of, you know, we, I know that I'm going to be pestering them and and getting back out with them (laughs) soon. Um, but that the concept of the marbled murrelet really got me thinking about the entire watershed system and what happens to our water supply when it goes from, you know, the top of the coast range downhill into the ocean and what other species are impacted by shifts to the watershed. Mm -hmm. Um, So the marbled murrelet, it depends on, you know, these big trees and on the ocean and trees are a huge part of uh, retaining water inside the watershed and ensuring that we don't have soil erosion and that sort of thing. Um, And so I started to kind of follow that watershed down and, and looking at other really compelling, cool, surprisingly neat species and I pulled a selection of them for what they they will be the watershed sentinel species. And so I am crafting this project. I am rambling. My goodness, oh, no, this is I excellent. Rambling. <laughs> oh, no, I, this is excellent. I, I even have more questions. So, Yay. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, these this, the project is going to be done in multiple phases. And the first phase is to really capture um the capture portraits of each of the sentinel species. And so there's the American Dipper and the Pacific Coast Giant Salamander, the um, Cobra Lily, which is a pitcher plant. Uh, oh, wow. There's all these different species that cover different types of habitats and ecosystems and needs inside of a watershed. And so I'm going to capture these portraits of them, but I want to do it in such a way that is very um, rule breakery. Like I just want to, <laughs> I want to like destroy the concept. Like there is, I don't want to go at it in any way that people are expecting. Um, yeah. so I'm going to be looking That's for, exciting. um, some portraits that, that bend and break rules for sure. And then, um, rules of like, you know, aesthetic stuff. I'd never break right, right. actual yeah. rules, but yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. I'm glad you clarified by, I figured. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so then the next phase would be to really document the places so that people get a, a feel for these watersheds. Um, mm-hmm. And then the third thing would be to photograph the people who are uh, working inside of the watersheds in restoration projects, or there are people who um, also depend on the watershed and who are the most impacted by changes or imbalances in the watershed. Um, We always think that our water supply, you know, it comes out of the top or it comes out of the reservoir, it comes out of the water treatment plant, but it doesn't. It comes from hillsides and creeks and streams and tributaries. It comes from all these places. And so people who are really affected um, by by that. And the goal of the project ultimately is to bring these really interesting, compelling visuals to the local population 
and, and have that be basically an invitation to them to learn more about their watershed and to really build the sense of stewardship and ownership and pride in their watershed so that they want to protect it. Not because they're being told that they're supposed to, or they have to, or they're being guilted. It's that they feel so connected and they feel so kind of like inspired by their watershed that they want to make good decisions about stewardship. Yeah. Oh, I think that's wonderful. How will you communicate that to the local communities? What will the publication look like? Will you have a gallery show or like, what's the avenue to go from your images to their brains? (laughs) Uh, So there's a whole bunch that I want to do. And, and I'm creating multiple deliverables in part because there's so many different audiences that I want to connect with who want to consume information in different ways. Mm -hmm. So I want to create a exhibit, uh, especially one that can be duplicated and put into visitor centers. Oh, that's a great idea. Um, You know, so people who love to go and visit, you know, these landmark places and they're going to be looking in visitor centers. And I also want to create gallery exhibits in local art galleries as well. Um, I want to create an interactive website. Mm -hmm. So I have the very bare bones early stages of the website there. But as it grows, people will be able to explore the species and the issues. They'll be able to follow maps. They'll have 3D tours of locations that they can delve into and really like from their computer experience species and places. I also want to create a coffee table book because everyone loves to have just that beautiful thing that sits around. Yeah. And the most important thing that I want to create are basically packages of educational materials that I can give to educators and speakers, and they can use them in classrooms, in presentations, at stakeholder meetings, but basically give them something that is already really well done that they, it's like a plug and play, as one of my friends calls it, a gallery in a box. (laughs) Um, And so they can use that and and it turns into something that other people are the educators. Other people ha- are empowered to talk about something in a way that will really engage their audiences. Right. Wow. Huge undertaking. It's going to be a long project. Yeah. I am not expecting to move quickly on this at all. Yeah. Oh, but it's going to be so rewarding. You know, I mean, imagine all the stuff that you're going to learn along the way when you're creating this. So a couple of things that came to mind. One, so I live in Vermont and um, in our local town, we have a science museum for kids. And it has these like rotating exhibits that right now everything's, you know, kind of closed because of COVID. But um, I feel like this project would be perfect, not not really here because it's not in your location. But if you had a science museum for kids out there, I don't know if they do, but this would be the exact kind of exhibit that they would have and where the kids can be learning about all these different things and interacting and um, I don't know, something to consider. I love, love, love that idea so much. It's something that didn't really occur to me to approach it in that way, but what a wonderful way to, to get in touch with kids. We yeah. have a, um, an aquarium that has a ton of space that they dedicate to really interactive ways of, of bringing people into their displays. And I could totally picture trying to do something alongside them. Yeah. With this. Yeah. Thank you so much for that idea. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Um, so the amount of research that goes into a project like this must be enormous, you know, and so you mentioned the team that you're working with. Are they mostly the the scientists behind this or are you um, basically stepping in that ecology, bot- botanist, biologist, naturalist role to do this type of research? And, and where do you go to to research that kind of material to identify these sentinel species and 
the role that they're playing? Yeah. Um, so the team that studies a marbled mirrorlet, they will be one teensy, tiny piece of that one species. Yeah. And so their needs for all of the species, I'm going to basically be getting in touch with anyone who's working um, in a scientific way or a um, you know, a volunteer way through restoration projects, watershed councils, nonprofit organizations, anyone who's working in some way related to the species or the places. So there's a lot of just setting the stage for collaboration and conversation that makes sense. around this. Um, so there's a lot of research that goes into that. And then there's also exactly what you said. There's a lot of naturalist research that you really have to dig into. And so some of the things that I'm studying um, are life cycles and times of year that things are happening for each of the species, uh, threats that they're facing. Um, there's all these crazy manuals that I'm digging into. Like there's, there was a manual on how to do, uh, rest Creek restoration projects when it comes to freshwater mussels, because Mm -hmm. freshwater mussels is one of my sentinel species is one particular species And so knowing, okay, well, here's a a guidebook on how you're supposed to do restoration efforts. That's going to give me a ton of information about, okay, so what are these things that are impacting them and how are people needing to go about restoration? And, And so there's all kinds of like lots of weird places that you can pull information from. Um, but then you, how do you track all that? And so that was a big sticking point for me was I was starting to get totally overwhelmed in how do I track all of it and make sure that I'm, um, maintaining sanity and, and shaping this in some way. And so, uh, I've built a crazy spreadsheet. Uh, It is basically a, um, a shot list and it talks about the different species and the different locations and the different times of year and what's happening for each of them and how that fits into the bigger story of each of them. Um, and so I'm just digging into that a whole lot and trying to build out shot lists and scenarios and ideas for like hundreds of different, you know, things that I want to capture, but it, it is really hard on a project of this scale with this level of kind of complexity, keeping track of that and knowing what you don't know and need to go learn. Right. And I know that there's yeah. going to be so much trial and error and like just kind of muddling along and figuring it out and that this project will hold a lot of surprises. And sometimes you just have to welcome that and yeah. know that it's going to change shape dramatically every time you work on it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many aspects to conservation photography as you're now um, making me realize. And so, you know, one question I was going to ask you was what was what would a day in the life of a conservation photographer look like? And I feel like it could look like any number of different things. (laughs) You know, you're you're doing photography or you're researching a species or you're researching a location or you're communicating with potential collaborators or publications or granting agencies, perhaps. And there's so many hats to wear. Um, mm-hmm. It's really fascinating. Yeah, it is really, um, it's funny to think about the whole day in the life thing, because uh, I remember like trying to build some structure around my day and reading about how you're really supposed to have a morning ritual and an evening ritual. And I'm like, 
Uh, that doesn't <laughs> exist in the life of a photographer, a nature photographer, for one thing. And then because you, yeah, you change hats so often yeah. that it's even really difficult to keep a weekly schedule that looks like remotely the same. Yeah, That's changed dramatically for many photographers during COVID where you're not traveling as much. So whatever you're working on can have more structure and your days can have more structure because you're required to work in a much smaller radius. Mm-hmm. Um for the most part, not true, not universally true. And for me, it's been really funny because, you know, to be really honest, I have focused so much energy into teaching and coaching that my like creative time has slipped way to the back burner. And so right now I'm struggling with prioritizing that. And now I have to, it's almost like I have to remind myself, um, Jamie, that job title you have it has photographer in it. So I think you're supposed to use a camera sometimes. So I don't even go do that today. And it's okay. You're allowed to go use your camera. That's not play. That is work. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I've been told the same thing, you know, and they're like, <laughs> my family will be like, well, you know, you, you are a photographer. It shouldn't be the reward for, you know, finishing building out the website that you get to go do photography. No, you get to mm-hmm. do photography because you're a photographer. <laughs> yes, exactly. We were just um, having a conversation with a group today. And um, one of the folks, she just moved to a new area and it was kind of going out and scouting and it wasn't super productive. And her partner was just like, you know, so are you going to do, are, are you going to have a real job soon? Like when are you going to work? You're not really doing anything. And, and we were all like, what? That is work. That is scouting. You are working inside of your business. Right. This is important research time. Exactly. Like, oh, you're a photographer. This is part of the, part of the job. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, so I, this is a bit of an aside, but so my background is in science. And um, so I came to photography only recently because I just got burnt out in science. I was doing molecular biology and and my love for the outdoors is needed to be honored. And so I left the science career to pursue something that got me outdoors more than being in a laboratory all day long. And uh, so photography was one of those potential answers to that question. And so anyway, it's just, you know, to, to be on it on this side, to be like, well, I'm not spending as much time outside. That was the whole goal. That was the whole reason why I started to pursue outdoor photography was to be outside more. And that is the job. <laughs> like, that's a yeah. wonderful job, you know? It really is. Yeah. I, I'm really excited to hear. I had no idea that molecular biology was your background before yeah. building up the outdoor photography school. And that's a, such a really interesting thing to think about because a lot of the scientists that I know who are in conservation photography or I should say a lot of the conservation photographers that I know did have a science background or were in science and decided this isn't really what is fulfilling me. I want to tell the story of science. I don't want to do the science. Mm, And so they have to make this kind of big leap, you know, to go from that, um, I don't know, kind of a mindset like, oh, am I giving up on science? Is, you know, am I I wasting my degree or something like that? But actually they get to take all of that science knowledge and put it to work inside photography in a way that gives them such an incredible edge for understanding story or for how to photograph something or for how to visualize data. So yeah. I love that you're yet another scientist turned photographer, yeah. and, you know, like really letting your desire to be outside kind of guide the way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I found that, you know, it was hard to let go of that and to be like, okay, well, I just spent the last 15, 20 years of my life getting this education to be a scientist. and after, I don't even remember how many 
eight years or so, I decided to pack it up. And um, that's a hard thing to do, you know, to just be like, well, I'm moving on. And, you know, it almost feels like there is this guilt or feelings of, did I just waste all of that training and all of that time and all of that endless nights and weekends in the laboratory doing experiments? But I really don't think that it was a waste because I, the way that I've learned to learn, to think critically, to ask questions, to be curious, all of that has helped my photography and my learning photography. And so I would, if I had to do it all over again, I would probably do the same thing, <laughs> you know, because awesome. yeah, it get it got me to where I am today. And I so appreciate even more so now that I get to spend this time outside. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I, I just love everything that you just said. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> So, so even though I'm not a, a conservation photographer myself yet, <laughs> uh, yeah, you might, you might, you're, you are enticing me here. So, um, I really love your your podcast uh, impact. I really enjoy listening to it. And recently, in episode sixty one, you talked about um, five questions you ask yourself to help you connect with the subject. And one of them was to ask whether or not you were worrying about quality or content when creating the image. And I think this is such an interesting question. And I was hoping you would explain a little bit about what you meant by making this distinction between quality and content. Absolutely. Um, I love that you picked out basically my favorite thing to think about and talk about when it comes to that topic, because, uh, you know, as nature photographers, we get, well, all photographers really, but uh, we get really pulled into worrying about tack sharp detail and rule of thirds and, you know, all of these things that are important, mm -hmm. but can often um, overrule other things in the image that are really important to, to contain as well or to capture as well, which is does that image say something? Yeah. And if you're worrying so much about technical quality that you forget to think about what your photo is saying, then you've taken a technically perfect, absolutely meaningless image yeah. that nobody is going to have any emotional response for. And so I like to, for a lot of the folks that, you know, I talk with who are really worried about technical quality, um, while I say, yes, it's important, you need to know how to use your camera, you need to have things sharp, you need to, you know, think about your composition, but worry more about what is happening in the photo. Does it have emotional impact? Does it have soul? Does it speak to you? Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of my favorite examples of this is one of my kind of big watershed sentinel portraits that I've held on to. And it's a image of an American dipper. And it was running in front of me and I was laying on my belly, hand holding a 500 millimeter and trying to follow this thing as it ran across a creek. Wow. And so the only shot that I got, I, I absolutely adored the position that it was in this body position that it was in, but it was running out of frame and was really close to the edge of the frame. And there was all kinds of other stuff wrong with it. And it was, it was not very well lit and all, you know, all these problems yeah. stacked up. But when I showed it to my boyfriend, he was like, that's a keeper. And I was like, I don't know. It's, you know, it breaks all the rules and, you know, it's running out of frame. There's all these problems. And he's like, no, I love this photo. And everyone that I showed it to really loved it too, because this, it's a unique um, body position. It's a unique kind of behavior. You don't see dippers like this very often. And so, and so I captured this like 
I don't know, this, this lovely moment for the species that a lot of people connected to. And so I decided, yeah, this is my reminder to myself. Yeah. That it's not technically perfect, but it says something. Right. And so it's okay. It's okay to let go of that technical, you know, in, in, imprecision. Is imprecision a word? Impre- whatever Imperfection. Imperfection. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> um, and it was actually, I sent a batch of images over to uh, a photo editor at Audubon and it was a batch of images of American Dippers, and that was the one that she loved. Oh, isn't that amazing? Yeah. So the others that were technically much more targeted, much more you know on point, they just weren't that interesting compared to this one. So yeah. it's my big example of like your photo has to really have content that draws people in, and your ability to have like that technical precision that can follow along behind content. But don't put it in front of content on the priority list. Yeah. I think that's like my my soapbox. Right, right. <laughs> I feel like it's hard sometimes. For me anyway, when I'm out, I um, I definitely get hung up on the technical stuff. Like that's definitely more my comfort zone. And uh, I have a friend who I do photography with and he he's always like, what's the story? What's the story? Like he's always trying to remind me that. And, you know, when I was first learning photography, I would ask him like, well, what were your, what are your settings, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And he's like, I don't even know. <laughs> like, he never really yep. paid attention. He just does it. He's done it forever. And so it's like part of his hands. He just knows what to do, you know, whereas I'm learning and trying to figure it all out. And sometimes I feel like the analogy that I've, or maybe a metaphor that I've come up with is baking bread. Have you ever baked bread? I've attempted to. Yeah. I mean, I'm not good at it, but like, you know how you're like folding the dough and you're kneading it on, there's like so many layers and you got to like push this layer in and squish it in. And then you put that other layer that folds in and squishes in. In a way, I kind of feel like that's the like creative and the technical side of photography. And it's Mm -hmm. hard in my brain anyway, to, to do them both at the same time until one becomes a little bit more just part of your nature that, you know, intuitively the right depth of field for this focal length or whatever to get the image you have in your head that you think you want to get for that shot versus paying attention to what is actually happening in front of me right now so that I know what's unfolding to be able to, you know, set my shutter speed the correct way so that I can capture that motion or whatever it is, you know, it's, um, there's so many layers to it that it, it's, it is a big challenge, you know, and yeah. uh, like, where do you put your effort into so that one becomes more part of your nature um, yeah. so that you can think about the other? Yeah, I love that analogy so much because now that you've kind of like illustrated it, that's exactly what it's like. You know, you are, you're, you're kind of weaving together these two critical elements um, and I know that for, for me, one of my strategies is when I, you know, grab my camera and I head out on the kayak in the morning and I, you know, want to just photograph before I'm settled in anywhere. And this is true for pretty much any situation where I'm not like really knowing what it is that I'm photographing or, or exactly what I want to get inside of this composition or this shot is I'll go on to shutter speed priority or aperture priority or some semi-automatic mode and let the, con- like we've built phenomenal computers that can figure out a whole lot of stuff, Right, like let it do some of the heavy lifting. Yeah, And then that way I can pay attention to what's going on in front of me and pay attention to the behavior so much more. That makes sense. But at the same time, I have absolutely shot myself in the foot 
by just like letting the camera do whatever it's going to do. And I'm paying attention to behavior. And then I look at the back of the camera and the settings are so messed up. Yeah. <laughs> and I totally ruined shots because I was, I was letting the camera do all of its thing and make a lot of mistakes that I yeah. should have been paying attention to and, and overpowered in manual mode. But I do think that for a lot of the time, if you're, if you're paying enough attention, semi-automatic modes are a wonderful way to sort of get comfortable in thinking about what's going on in front of you and think about that story, like your your friend said, and then, you know, bring in the technical stuff after that. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely, um, I, I don't really, I don't intentionally do wildlife photography. So I've, I have had wildlife encounters with my camera, I should say, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) random happenstance times where I've met a moose or whatever. Um, and so I've been very fortunate in those situations, but I've often like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. And then I feel like everything I've ever learned about photography just goes out of my head, you know, because I'm like yeah. so excited to have this moment. And um, I have learned to just in the moment where I'm feeling so excited and I can't think straight, just go to auto ISO and then, you know, I can do the shutter speed and whatnot. And then I don't have to worry so much about exposure. And I can raise the shutter speed pretty high. And then once I've taken a few shots and I'm like, Ooh, okay, now I can, <laughs> now I can think a little bit more clearly. <laughs> the animal yeah. isn't going to like poof and disappear all at once, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. I, I, I'm totally imagining, you know, those moments where you have a wildlife encounter and it's just so like, oh my God, oh my God. Yeah. And, and your arms are shaking <laughs> yes. and you've got the, you know, jiggly legs. And <laughs> I had one uh, recently of a moose. It was a baby moose actually. And I just had, I had been scouting all day, looking for photography locations and was striking out. And I was finally like tired of just being in the car. So I was like, I need to go for a hike. And I was in some um, wildlife national refuge in Northern Vermont. And uh, so I got out, I found a trail and I'm hiking along and I saw a beaver dam and I was like, Ooh, maybe I'll get to see a beaver, you know? So I'm like thinking beavers and all of a sudden just around the trail, you know, trail bend. And in the bend of the trail, there was a tree that kept snapping up and down. And I was like, what the heck is this? And so I walk around and sure enough, there's this baby moose and just munching away at the leaves and looking at me. And, and, um, at first I was like, oh dear, where's mama moose, (laughs) you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I didn't see mama moose. And so I just sat there and she just looked at me and I looked at her and I got a couple shots and, um, yeah, it was just such a special moment. And, uh, yeah, I felt so lucky, you know, and that's just amazing. Yeah. I bet that's one of those, I feel like there are certain encounters that you have that not only do you have images to prove it, but it's really seared into your memory. Yeah. Uh, and so there's that magical blend of, oh my gosh, I'm actually putting this in my, in my memory bank and not just reliving it through those images. Right. But you're here present in the moment living it and you walk away with images. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was just so cool because she, I, I'm pretty sure it was a female. She was, um, you know, she would really just look at me and wasn't scared. It wasn't bothered by my presence. I stayed still. It didn't get closer to her or anything like that. And she just sort of go about her her day just munching the leaves and then she'd kind of look at me again and then she'd go back and munch on the leaves and it was just like so peaceful you know um yeah so speaking of wildlife actually i had a couple questions um so for people who are interested in getting into wildlife conservation photography but aren't yet that familiar with the species that they plan to document 
Um, what are some best practices for learning an animal's behavior so that the photographer minimizes any negative consequence to the animal or even to themselves while pursuing that story? Mm. Great question and great thing to be thinking about. Um, I think that field guides are our best friend. So studying up on everything that you can about the animal and understanding what their baseline behavior looks like. And by baseline behavior, I mean, what do they do? How do they behave? What are they like when they're not stressed, when mm. they're just going about their day? Mm -hmm. um, maybe they're foraging or they're hunting or they're, you know, lazing about or grooming or whatever it is. What does that look like? And then when you understand what that looks like and what that behavior is, then you can much more easily identify signs of stress or tension or when you are actually impacting that behavior. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So I like to go on to, well, first of all, field guides um, for sure and, and reading, but I also like to go on to, you know, YouTube or Vimeo and look for anything that is showing that animal moving around, um, like kind of really letting me get a sense of what their movement's like. Going on, especially if you're going to focus on birds, going on to All About Birds um, or Birds of North America and studying up for everything there, watching little video clips, listening to alarm calls mm. and sounds and vocalizations. Those things can all help you understand what normal looks like for that animal and what not normal yeah. might look yeah. like. Um, and then I also think it's really important to understand how that animal behaves in its environment. So what's its normal cycle like during the day as well as during the year? Is there like, let's take elk, for example. Well, we know that there's a certain time of year where the males go nuts, right? right? Yeah. They're, they're going to be much more aggressive. They're going to have behaviors that are not like how they are the rest of the year. They're going to have um, morphology that's different. They have antlers that they're going to shed later. Um, and so I think the understanding some of these things about animals and how they behave throughout the day as well as throughout the year, that's going to help you understand when you need to really back off from them, how much space you need to give them based on whatever it is that they're feeling during that time of year or that time of day. Um, and and their, proc like, their space bubble may shift when they're um, alerted or peeved or whatever. Every animal, every species has um, – changes in that, whether it's nesting season or mm. breeding season or baby raising season or when they're stressed because there's low levels of food that year. So they're behaving in a way that's different. Um, and really understanding a lot of these little subtleties in their cycle can really help you understand what your actual impact might be on them at that time. Yeah, that's excellent. Great response. Thank you. Yeah. How do you see the field of conservation photography changing in the next 10 or 20 years? In the next 10 years and or in the next 20 years, how I see it changing in kind of a fairly concrete way is we're going to see more conservation oriented stories in mainstream publications. Mm -hmm. And I think that as we as the niche of conservation photography becomes kind of more um, popular, more understood, it's not quite as obscure then the way that we are capable of telling stories that matter to a mainstream audience is going to, we're just going to, um, it's going to matter more, yeah. I think, and, and be a more important part of mainstream media. I think that that's, that's one, one hope that I have. Yeah. Um, and the other way that I see it changing and that I am personally very driven to help facilitate this change is we will see a much greater diversity 
in the photography community, mm-hmm. in conservation photographers and who is telling the stories. Yeah. Because it's been a very white male dominated field. It still is. And um, t- hearing stories about issues from only one perspective, no matter how golden hearted that perspective may be, it doesn't do justice to the story and there's going to be blind spots. Yeah. And so it's really important that we bring more and more diverse voices into conservation visual storytelling so that we truly understand conservation issues. We yeah. truly understand what's happening from different perspectives. And really importantly, that we empower people to tell their own stories where they are. Right. So we're not just, you know, parachute journalism, firing, you know, some people into areas to go document stuff and, and having a bunch of Westerners go into areas and document, you know, stuff in communities that they aren't actually part of. Right. While we need those stories to be told, we really need to empower the people in those communities to tell their story from their community perspective. Yeah. So that's also how I hope conservation will conservation photography will change in the next 10 to 20 years. It is really difficult, slow work. There's a huge um, cost barrier of entry mm. because of equipment, because of training. Right. Um, so it'll be difficult work, but I'm, I'm personally very driven to make that happen. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, do you think that uh, social media outlets will become more of a platform for conservation photography projects more than, say, print publications? I do, yeah. Yeah, I think that um, unf- I think it's unfortunate in a lot of ways, and I don't want to see it change. Yeah, because I, you know, we we're watching journalism disappear and journalistic standards disappear, yeah. and that's really dangerous. Yeah, and so you know, it's not great that it feels like that's the trend, but social media is definitely incredibly powerful. It is built to be addictive. It is built to be very visual. Mm -hmm. So I think that the way that we can be very conscious about how we tap into it and use it can be really productive. There's this amazing woman, her name's Rue Mahoney, and she runs Impact Project. And she did They, I need to dig into the details of this, but basically they had an initiative that they were going to be pushing out around a film and um, something about COVID kind of threw it off the tracks. And so she pivoted and they did this huge TikTok campaign. Oh, wow. And it went bananas and was really successful. And it's all because she had the foresight to be like, oh, well, you know, let's find a different solution. Let's utilize a social media platform. And in wild, so I run a membership community called Wild Idea Lab, and it's where conservation visual storytellers can come in and we talk about creativity and professional development and, you know, all these other things. And so we have a lot of conversations around this. And one of the conversations that we've been having a lot recently is how do we utilize social media to reach beyond the choir? Yeah. So we're talking about how do we use Twitch? How do we use TikTok? How do we use, you know, the way that we tap into Instagram reels and, you know, highlight stories and all this stuff so that we can still get a message across to people and be really savvy, right. you know, with how we're using it for conservation aims. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely challenging. I, I feel like I have like an allergy to social media, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like I see its value. I see its shortcomings. Um, and it's, you know, and I just haven't gotten into it enough myself beyond like YouTube and Instagram really is the only places that I am. And uh, learning all, it feels like there's always another platform coming out with all new requirements and you have to shoot in different aspect ratios and orientations. And it just, after a while, it gets a little overwhelming, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But I do think it's a way to reach people. Like, that's how you're going to reach more people that way. And so it is, uh, 
a soapbox potential. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I have a friend whose film is premiering on March 20th and they're in the midst of doing their kind of big push uh, on social media to get people to watch the premiere. And it's a conservation film. And uh, they are doing just an outstanding job with using really fun, humorous Instagram stories and Instagram videos like they're at the IGTV yeah. to drive people to YouTube where they can sign up for the premiere and get reminders. That's great. So they're just yeah. being brilliant about using these platforms to get more and more eyeballs onto this really rad conservation film. Yeah. What's it called? Can you say? It's called, yeah, it's called Deer 139. Okay. Uh, and it is about a researcher who is following a deer that she's been studying. It's a collared mule deer. And she's been studying her and following her. And she's like, the deer, so it's deer, deer number 139 is who she's following. And she has this migration pattern that's just like way more epic than everyone else in the herd. And so she wants to know like why she's kind of taking this route and she wants to experience it from the deer's perspective. So her and a a reporter and her best friend, who's a naturalist, they basically put on backpacks and they hike the trail, the, the, basically the route that this deer takes on her migratory path and all the things that they learn about and really seeing what she faces and why, um, like migration corridors are, are threatened. Yeah. Um, we don't think of so many things that stand in front of animals just trying to get to the two places that they need to be at different times of year. And, right. And this film does it and it's hilarious and silly and <laughs> joyful and very serious. And it it is uh, like, I know I'm raving about it, but I honestly think that this is really good conservation storytelling because you get the message yeah. and you enjoy receiving the message. Yes. You know? <laughs> that is key for sure. Yeah. Well, I will, I will uh, ask you for the link so I can put it in the show notes. Awesome. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, before we wrap things up, are you up for doing a quick lightning round? Sure. Okay. So no overthinking, just whatever first comes to mind. Okay. Okay. Uh-oh, this might get me in trouble. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your favorite subject to photograph? Coyotes. Yes. Okay. I do mention your coyote project in the intro. Um, what never leaves your camera bag that's not your camera, lens, or tripod? Okay, this is going to be really embarrassing, but chapstick. Oh, that's not embarrassing. <laughs> I feel like I have like little vials of chapstick in every pocket of every camera bag. <laughs> I can appreciate that. <laughs> um, so you must spend a lot of long hours in the field. So what is your favorite snack to pack? Mint flavored cliff bars. Ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The chocolate mint ones. Yes, I do like good. those. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is one of the most important things you've learned as a conservation photographer? You can screw up and and usually your best work comes out of those screw ups. Ooh. That's good. <laughs> Embrace it, right? <laughs> Embrace it. Yep. It's safe to screw up. Yeah. Um, so then the last one is what is connecting with nature mean to you? Feeling whole. Beautiful. It really? Yeah. yeah. It, um, it means, yeah, I don't know how else to put it. It means feeling whole. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jamie, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really glad that we got to connect and I got to hear some of your stories and everything. Um, I I just loved everything that you shared with us today. 
If people wanted to learn more about your conservation photography course and Wild Idea Lab or any of your other projects, how is the best way for them to find you? Well, uh, they could go either to my website, jamieheimbuck.com, or they can go to conservationvisualstorytellersacademy.com. And that is where all of that information lies. Okay, cool. I will definitely put those links in the show notes. And um, you had mentioned in an email that you have an ebook that the listeners might be interested in. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's free to download. It's on my website at jamieheimbuck.com and you'll see it right there on the homepage. Okay, cool. And what's it about? It's the six must-have shots for every photo story. So Ooh. if you're curious, like if you got really into that conversation, nerding out on types of images, this yeah. walks you through six that you really need to have. Cool. Well, I'm going to, I'm definitely downloading that. Awesome. <laughs> well, I had so much fun talking to you. This was a blast for me and I really hope it's not the last conversation. We should oh, definitely talk a whole lot more because I really want to find out more about your path from being a scientist into photography. And there's just so much we got to dish on. Absolutely. That, that would be wonderful. I would absolutely love that. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. All right. I hope you enjoyed that info-packed interview with Jamie Heimbuck as much as I did. You can find out more about Jamie's projects, her conservation courses, and Wild Idea Lab on her website at jamieheimbuck.com. And if you're interested in doing a conservation project of your own, I highly recommend downloading her free ebook called The Six Must-Have Shots for a Powerful Photo Story to get started. And don't forget to check out her podcast as well, which is called Impact, the Conservation Photography Podcast. And I'll have all of the relevant links in today's show notes, which you can find at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash episode seven. And again, thank you, Jamie, for coming on the show. And thank you, listeners, for sticking around until the end. I appreciate you, and I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. We have several exciting guests coming up, including biologist-turned-landscape photographer Rob Hirsch, who shares his experiences photographing Yosemite and the surrounding Sierra Nevada. And then we'll have Texas-based nature photographer Linda Nickel, who is also the host of The Happiness Hour. And Happiness Hour is a free weekly photography seminar series that she started as a way of connecting photographers during the pandemic. And I was lucky enough to be an invited speaker recently, and it really is a wonderful group worth checking out. If you're loving the podcast, it would be incredible if you would take a minute to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The reviews really help to get the word out about the show, and it also helps with getting guests to come on and chat. So thank you to everyone who already has left a rating and review. I read all of them and I appreciate it so, so much. And last but not least, I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll give a tip and answer your submitted questions. If you have a question you'd like to have me answer on a Tidbit Tuesday, just click the link in today's episode description or go to outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash podcast and you will be able to record your short message. Till then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care. <laughs>